You're listening to a Joy podcast. To check out more podcasts from Joy 94.9, head to joy.org.au. This is How Do You Do That with Emily Tresseter on Joy 94.9, the show answering the questions you didn't even know you had. This week's guest is writer and director Samuel Van Grinsman. He works in Australian film and has just released his first feature film, Sequin in a Blue Room. We talk about the challenges of finding acceptance and space for queer cinema in the world, what hard work and persistence can achieve, in this case, even with a small team and micro budget, and what to expect from your first Hollywood party. I think I just grew up constantly being told that that part of myself, you know, that the queerness of my identity was something that was at odds with a wider acceptance and a safe space. So when you get told that your film has sold out and it's also a film that is so personally connected to your own identity, that was just, I, 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 I still don't think I'm over that. It's, it's surreal. Sam's first film was nominated for awards and sold out at the Sydney Film Festival, something he couldn't have dreamt of. But did he always dream of being a director? Uh, no, not at all. I, I, I grew up not really realising that that was a real job that people did. I think I thought films just sort of appeared. I guess I sort of spent most of like high school just trying to find something I could be good at because everyone in my family was quite good at something. So I really wanted to find something I was good at and uh, I thought that that was acting. I went to acting school for six months, left that to do uh, fashion. I worked at a fashion magazine. Uh, then left that to direct theatre, and then uh, on a drive home from a crappy theatre show one night, uh, my best friend said, have you thought about film? Uh, and then told me that there was a film school down the road. Uh, I applied, it happened to be the Australian Film School. Uh, and then, yeah, I guess I kind of figured out, um, they asked you on the first day of the Australian Film School, um, they get everyone in the theatre who's a new student to put their hand up if they want to be a director, and on the first day, every single person in the room generally puts their hand up because everyone thinks that's the job that they want to do in film. And then you spend the entire first year doing all the other disciplines except for directing. You do directing like last. And then they ask you again on the last day. And on the last day, like five people put their hand up. Do you think that's because the other disciplines were more fun or because directing seemed so ominous? I think people... I think when you find out... Um, specifically what the director actually does on set. I think that changes uh, people's idea of what the role is. Um, and people sort of find that uh, that they really love just one side of filmmaking. You know, they're really into uh, the cinematography or they love putting worlds together, but they love putting worlds together um, in a physical sense, in a production design sense. And the director's job is sort of overseeing all of that. Um, these days, more and more, the director's job is is also a big part of the writing process. Um, and yeah, I think people people go in really in love with an aspect of filmmaking, uh, and then they sort of find out, oh, I can just do that aspect, and that and I, I sit well in just that. Whereas I think directors are sort of people who are restless and never never really find that area that they fit in perfectly. Does that mean that direction is delegation, or that you have to have your finger in each of the different pies? Yeah, you definitely have to have your finger in each of the pies. Um, you have to be a, you have to be a great collaborator, absolutely. But uh, at the end of the day, you're the one steering the ship. Um, and, and everyone, you know, great collaboration. It's it, it's always that appreciation that there is that one person who 
who, especially on set, uh, is, is, is sort of seeing beyond what each of the individual departments can see on their own. Uh, so there are times, there are definitely times on my first feature where, you know, the whole crew are sort of looking at you like, are you really sure that you want to do that? The director is sort of the only person who's editing the film in their mind, you know? You're sort of, you're looking at the, the end goal, the end product, and that's sort of not always the easiest thing for everyone to see. So when you're at film school and it went from everyone in the room to only five people in the room putting their hand up to be a director, why were you one of them? I, I think maybe because I went in not wanting to be one. <laughs> <laughs> Just doing um, the opposite of what your brain's telling you. <laughs> yeah. And it was sort of where I naturally found myself on, you know, across that first year at film school. It's just sort of where I naturally found myself sitting. I really enjoyed writing, but I, uh, I, I, when, I write, when I wrote scripts, I was always making the film at the same time in my head. I was thinking about how it would shoot, how we would cast it, how I would direct the actors to do that. You know, it was filmmaking from day one, I guess because I come from that theatre background has always been a really holistic um, sort of medium. And I love being a part of everything. And I think also directors tend to be people who love to communicate and love to collaborate. I love working with other people who are brilliant at what they do, whether that's cinematographers or actors especially. I, I find directors uh, are those sort of people that, you know, are so desperate to share something personal or emotional or a world or an idea. Um, and, the, uh, and the thrill sort of comes from bringing that idea to life with a whole bunch of people who are a lot more talented than you are. Sam sees directing as a way to share something personal or emotional. And from our chat, I can tell Sequin in a Blue Room was just that. Why was Sequin such an important film for him to make? It was definitely was never, not, not commercially minded to begin with, that, that's, that's for sure. Um, for me, the, my, my first film comes from a space of kind of looking to, to fill a gap, um, a space where I didn't see my own experience reflected. Um, initially when I decided, when I knew I was going to be making my first full length feature film, um, I was really against the idea of making a coming of age story. Um, I thought it was, you know, there's enough of them. Um, the queer films that are made every year around the world, so many of them are coming of age stories. Um, but the more I sort of delved into my research, um, and you know, the films that really shaped me as a creative, but also as a, as a queer person. I, I knew that, that that was where my, uh, my first film was going to exist and um, that kind of came from the fact that a digital coming of age, a, a, a queer coming of age um, in our current time with technology and with apps, um, I hadn't seen that done properly and I hadn't seen it done honestly. Uh, and I guess I, uh, I wanted to use the film to have an honest conversation, uh, both internally within our own queer community about what it means to come of age in the digital age, um, how much younger we come out, how much quicker we grow up than our straight or you know, our non-queer peers in high school. And that was sort of the, a space that I didn't see accurately told broadly, you know, in terms of international queer cinema, but um, definitely not being told at all in Australian cinema. Sequin in a Blue Room was a story Sam felt needed to be told and was a story that wasn't being told in Australian cinema. Has creating that film meant Sam has found his specific type of directing? I guess I'm, I, I think I'm still kind of figuring it out. You know, that's, that's sort of the joy of 
being off the back of my of my debut feature, um, I you know I'm I'm fortunate enough to because the film has done well. I I'm in the process of developing, um, you know, my first uh, long form series as well as my second film, uh, and to have you know uh, industry and, and and new producers sort of attached to those, um, you sort of you start to have the space and the resources to really dive into that because I think when you make your first feature especially you're running off instinct at least you know if it's going well um and and you're given the freedom to do that you're running off instinct and I think it it, it takes that next project and stepping away from your first sort of stamp on the film world um to have some uh perspective um I think I'm definitely what I've learned so far in it's in um, you know the time I've had to gain that perspective is uh, I'm really interested in the queer interpretation of genre. So uh, my first film is a coming of age film that is uh, fused in genre hybridity with a, uh, a psychological thriller, uh, and my second film is a queer horror film, and that kind of comes from I guess a a socio-political kind of space for me as well in the sense that I personally am fed up with queer cinema being um, not taken as seriously commercially um, constantly referred to as an, an indie space of filmmaking when uh, it's anything but that and I think I'm very much inter interested in from a, uh, from a character standpoint and from a um, creative standpoint uh, the queer interpretation of genres that are typically uh, more mainstream and more financially successful, um, like, like the horror genre in Australia. It's interesting to hear Sam talk about this idea that queer film has become synonymous with indie film. We talk more about that and how creating queer cinema can in some ways be much harder. I think like, um, you know, the sort of exceptions to that are the queer Oscar films, you know, um, thankfully, uh, there's been one almost every year across like the last kind of five years. We've had Carol, we've had um, Coined by Your Name, A Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And these are films that are, that sort of break that, you know, they become mainstream successes, they're widely available in cinemas around the world and they're taken very seriously, but they're taken seriously because they're a part of the Oscars conversation and because they're brilliant, you know, they, 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 are, they are wonderful films. But I think it is, yeah, it's, it, it's sort of interesting that I think the different road that queer films generally have to take in order to get to that mainstream space um, it's a longer road, uh, and uh, it's a it, it's it's just a more complex space to to stop being referred to as an indie queer film and start being referred to as you know uh, a mainstream film. And there's you know there's pluses and negatives to that. Um, when you are referred to as a as a as a queer indie film, uh, you find a wonderful audience. You know the the queer film audience, the queer audience in general are such supportive, um, wonderful cinema goers as are uh, queer film festivals. So it's a bit of a double edged sword. It's not always easy, but Sam definitely wanted to portray a story personal to him and to others. A really important part of creating Sequin in a Blue Room was its authenticity. The lead actor in the film is Melbourne-based queer actor Connor Leach. Sam explained to me why this was such an important casting choice. That was definitely a big, big part of us for the casting process. We, we really wanted that sort of authentic casting, but also I think too often, uh, especially in commercial queer coming-of-age stories, um, you know, a young straight man gets cast, and um, I think we need to we need to see that change. Yeah, authentic casting is is just so important ac across all film, but um, I think it's something that's 
we really need to remove that stigma of this idea that you know the Hollywood leading man um, as as being such a narrow narrow frame, and you know the idea that queer actors can't carry a mainstream picture is just absurd. Sam's decisions throughout the creation of his first feature film were all about creating the most authentic story possible. I wanted to hear what a day on the set of that film was like. Yeah, I mean, I'll talk about a day on um, on set of a micro-budget indie-Australian film. No, but that's exactly what, you know, your experience is. And I think it yeah. it's so interesting because so many people would not have any idea of what that is yeah like literally if it's like you know i stand on a cardboard box and i you know like whatever (laughs) it is you know okay well i wake up i i check the call sheet for the day which i um which is a document that's sent out by the first assistant director and the producer uh and on that document it will tell me exactly uh what i'm shooting that day in terms of scenes how much time i as the director have to pull off that scene um or those scenes uh, what cast are coming to set that day, who my crew is that day. Uh, so the heads of department roles always stay the same in terms of cinematographer, production designer, but um, the sort of uh, assistant roles do change from day to day. So I get an idea of who's going to be on set with me. I then get in the car and if and because we're talking about micro-budget indie Australian filmmaking, I drive myself to set most definitely, <laughs> if not catch the bus. And I normally am on set up probably about uh all the heads of department get there first so i'm on set quite early um, and i'm there before the cast star uh on set i go and i meet with my first assistant director who is sort of like the on-set producer and they will run me through the day and then together with them and the cinematographer um sometimes with the production designer as well and makeup um, basically heads of department will do a walkthrough. So we'll walk through the location. Um, generally that's been dressed already before I've arrived. Uh, and we'll talk about what is in this scene, how long is it, it is, uh, what we're going to need to pull off. Uh, and then the first AD will come over and give me a big, big dose of reality and say, um, no, <laughs> you can't have that many shots. You're never going to be able to pull that off in time. So you just go straight into, into not compromising, but into communicating and discussing and finding out the best ways to, to pull off the scene that we all have in our head um, with the time that we've been given. And then we go into shooting. Uh, actors generally arrive around the same time if they haven't already. Um, so actors will be getting ready and then they'll come to set. And we usually have the first shot set up. The actors walk onto into the space. We get into it. Yeah, I generally I have a, uh, I'll have a talk with them prior um, and make sure we're on the same page around what the scene requires. We'll shoot, depending on who the actor is, sometimes we shoot their close-ups first, sometimes we shoot their wides first. That's um, their personal preference? It can be, it can be a discussion, but generally the director's, you know, uh, gets a bit of an idea of what's best depending on what the scene is. So say, uh, I'll use Sequin Blue Rumors example, um, Connor Leach, who plays the protagonist, he's in almost every single scene and shot in the film. Um, he, I learned, I probably by about day three, I knew that Connor's best take is generally his first or his second for a scene. So I will do all of his close-ups first. And he's also just a, an, an incredibly brilliant actor who is so intricately detailed in terms of his physicality. So it was, it just made sense, you know, let's just focus on his face because that's going to tell us everything we need to know. Uh, and then go to the wides. And generally as a director, I hate wide shots. I, I hardly have them in my films. 
Um, so that means that by the time I get the wide shots, I'm I'm more, I'm running out of time to shoot that scene. Uh, so I can spend the least amount of time on them. Why don't you like wide shots? Um, I've just I find them one they're incredibly difficult to do. Um, they're difficult to light. They're difficult to make naturalistic. Um, and they, they're incredibly time consuming because everything has to be right. You know, every inch of production design that's in the frame, there's a lot more of it in the frame. Um, there's a lot more lighting in the frame. Um, the actors blocking generally has to be spot on in order to hit their lighting marks, to hit their sound marks. They're difficult to do, but I also just, I guess it's the type of films that I make and the characters I have. Um, I'm far more interested in being right there with them, um, right up close. Uh, and telling a story without having to, to, to feed it to the audience, I guess is my sort of approach. And in that sense, um, my film language, when I use a wide shot, it's more for an emotional reason as opposed to a geographical, letting the audience know exactly where we are type reason. It was super interesting to hear about a day on set. As Sam co-wrote the film as well as directed it, I wanted to know how much of the original storyboard made it into the film. Uh, it, it depends on the scene. So um, there are scenes that are a lot more technically difficult than others. Um, I find the scenes that change the most on set in terms of visually or blocking or, you know, the frame size, whatever it is, the scenes that change the most are the scenes that are really performance-centric. So say, you know, a, 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 a difficult, long two-hander dialogue scene that is full of emotion, you know, be it a fight, be it a breakup, whatever it is. I find for me personally that those scenes are the scenes that tend to change the most from how you planned them. And that's because your job as a director is to react to what you're seeing in front of you. And that is the performance, that's the actors. So, you know, an actor might say to you, look, uh, I know you're kind of thinking this blocking that I'd be at the window, but I just have this feeling that when he walks in the door, I'd already be sitting on the bed and you go, oh my God, of course, of course, that makes so much sense. That might've been your intention when you were in pre-production, when you were planning, because you know that's how you saw it in your head or that's how you wrote it. But when an actor inhabits that character, it's so exciting. It's, it's like the biggest thrill of being a director when, you know, when an actor comes up to you and says that and, you know, of course it's a discussion and you can talk about with them. And if you're really set on that window or then being, or there's a real, you know, reason that they can't quite see yet or about, about you know, that, that positioning or, or the blocking that you have in, um, in your head for a scene, but you have to be adaptable. And, and that's probably one of the hardest parts is, is really adapting to, you know, weather or performance or equipment limitations or lighting or time of day. Um, but it's, it's also kind of like, you get a bit of a high off it as well. But not every director is like that, right? Like, I, I mean, I hear, obviously it's just sort of stories through the grapevine that there yeah. are directors on set where an actor will be like, Hey, like, what if I put my hand here? And they're like, absolutely not. Yeah. I, I yeah. I mean, you could have a bit of both, to be honest. In my experience, it's, a, it's, it's a bit of both. There, there are scenes in sequin where I, you know, was, was pretty, cut and dry about exactly what I wanted because I knew in my head in me sitting there at my monitor or me in the meetings I can see in my head how it all edits together and I know it has to be that way. Sequin is a very very precise film um, because a lot of it's told through close-ups, uh, a lot of it is incredibly still 
and there's next to no dialogue in a lot of scenes. So it had to be very, very precise and the blocking had to be precise. And there's a there's sort of a, a tension and a style in terms of the thrill elements of the film that's born from that stillness. So they're just, it's, it's, it's a push and pull. You need to know when you need to let something go because if you do, you're going to get a great performance or, you know, the cinematographer gets to try something that you never even imagined, but then they show you and you go, okay, yeah, you have to be open to that. And, um, but at the same time, you, yeah, you have to, you have to know when, um, stick to your guns. Yes. Uh, and I, I think that balance is something that you, that you're constantly, um, negotiating and constantly learning. And, um, yeah, I'm, it still makes me nervous. Considering the constant negotiation with directing and the many people involved in the process, I wanted to know if there was a memorable moment on set that Sam thought, yes, we're getting this. This is exactly what we wanted. Yeah, I mean, look, there are definitely times where generally the director isn't, well, always, the director is not in the actor's eye line. So I'm, um, they can't ever see what I'm doing, <laughs> which is good because there are times where, you know, if Connor would pull off something performance-wise that just, you know, I, I'm, I'm watching the, the monitor and if it hits me in that moment, um, on set, you know, when I'm stressed, when I've got people around me, you know, talking to me constantly or, you know, I'm, I'm having to think about what, what's the next shot, what's the next scene. And if I feel it genuinely and I feel it in the way that I hope the audience will, I, I kind of start dancing behind the monitor. <laughs> so um, uh, there were definitely a few times like that. Uh, and one of them for sure was the Blue Room, you know, the, the sort of namesake of the film itself. Um, it was incredibly difficult to pull it off with the budget that we had. Uh, it was our biggest crew by far. It was also our biggest cast on set. So it was four main actors and uh, about 20 extras, for, which for a film of our size is a lot. And it just all came together. And I remember seeing it. It came up on monitor. The first shot that we shot in the blue room, it came up on the monitor. And the cinematographer came over and he said, I want to show you the move that we're going to do. And he showed me the move. And it just looked exactly how it did in my head when I wrote it, you know, the year before. And and that those moments were just so rare where it, it looks exactly like it is in your head or it exceeds that idea. And yeah, I think that was the first time it ever, it was probably about midway through the shoot and it was the first time I thought we might pull this off. <laughs> Sam and his team definitely did pull it off, and Sequin in a Blue Room has been widely well-received. Before we get to what to expect at your first Hollywood party, I asked what the hardest part of being a director is. Speaking to sort of where I'm at currently, um, you know, one of the hardest parts for us is that we are a micro-budget indie that's gotten um, a lot of mainstream attention, but we don't have that infrastructure around the film. You know, we are... We're a very small team and, you know, we take our cinema release, for example, you know, the film is in cinemas nationally at the moment, um, but we don't have a film distributor in Australia, you know, um, distributors in Australia um, weren't really interested in picking the film up because um, whether they thought it was too niche or they didn't see, you know, a a road to profit or, you know, whatever their their reasons are. uh, internationally, completely different story. You know, we've we, we've been picked up by some amazing distributors over there who are really championing the film. But in Australia, you know, we are self-distributing, and um, but we're in cinemas. You know, Dendi Cinemas um, and Luna Cinemas in Perth—they've come behind the film and really championed it. And 
we're doing it ourselves and I think it's it, I think that's probably one of the hardest parts when you're making queer content but when especially when you're making queer indie films you you have to take on so many more roles than just the one role uh, and I, I'm lucky to be surrounded by an incredible team who really believe in the film and that's why it's you know being able to be seen by as many audiences as it has been um, but I think when you're making a film that sort of exists outside of that typically mainstream, financially accessible kind of box, it, it is hard and you, and you have to take on more roles. So I think throughout the process, you know, from writing to production to post-production to now release, um, that's, that's been one of the most difficult parts. It's just convincing people that this film has an audience, um, that it, it, it's worth telling um, and that it will connect and you sort of just have to non-stop um, keep saying it until until someone believes you. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're lucky that, you know, whether it's Sydney Film Festival picking us up for the first time or Dendi Cinemas agreeing to release the film commercially or even reviewers, you know, deciding to really get behind the film for the first time. We're, we've just been really lucky that along the way at each point someone has listened to us. It is evident from the number of international film festival features and the number of award nominations that the film has been championed in many ways. Let's hear more about the film's international success. We, um, we uh, internationally premiered in Los Angeles and then we went, uh, we're at the Palm Springs Festival, um, Toronto, so TIFF, and uh, Oldenburg in Germany, BFI in London. Um, so yeah, we've done a we've done a bit of an international circuit. Generally, we go to most of them. We're so lucky that you know the festivals uh, fly us out, so we can be there to do a Q and A. Um, that's you know an incredible opportunity, and it's amazing to see how international audiences um, respond to it. But it's also been nice, you know. Um, Connor, the lead actor, this was his first film that he's ever done, ever. Not just feature film, short film. You know, he's gotten to travel with the film. He got to go to Los Angeles. He, um, he got flown over to um, the UK uh, and, and did Q&As by himself over there for the film. And, you know, it's been wonderful to see sort of everyone, the larger team, get those opportunities internationally as well as domestically. Sam tells me a little more about a specific international festival and gives us an insider's look at a Hollywood party. It was Outfest in LA, so it was um, hosted by HBO, and it was just uh, you know the film got the film played in the Chinese theater in um, in Hollywood, which is just stuff that you know you never even think could happen. And like the party, the parties are um, at Outfest. The the main party we went to was the sort of pool party um, in West Hollywood, and the cart like all the cast members from um, Drag Race were performing on the pool. You know, we went along thinking it was just you know your average sort of Australian party. Um, and then, yeah, these all these drag race queens are there. It's just stuff like that that, you know, you never expect is going to happen. It kind of felt like we were in La La Land. Sequin in a Blue Room was nominated for a number of awards. Sam spoke about what it felt like to be nominated at the beginning of this episode. What does it feel like to win, though? Then we got the, we won, you know, the Audience Choice Award at Sydney Film Festival for Best Narrative Feature. And that was, yeah, I, fe- I woke up to uh, my phone kind of going off and people messaging me saying that you got it, you know, you you won the audience choice. And yeah, it just felt like such a moment. Either the first queer film to win that or one of the first. Um, and it just, yeah, I, I, I couldn't quite believe that, that sort of connection between the two, you know, something that is um, so personal, but then, you know, you, it gets so widely embraced and um, accepted and um, sort of championed by the Australian public. Sequin in a Blue Room is showing in Sydney Dendy Cinemas and Luna Cinemas in Perth.
I'm told it will be streamable in the near future, so keep your eyes out for that. I'd like to thank Samuel Van Grinsven for being on the show, as the conversations we had about queer representation in cinema are so very important. And it's great to see through persistence and hard work, his film has been recognised and celebrated. I hope we answered some questions you didn't even know you had. Thanks for listening to another episode of How Do You Do That with Emily Tresseter. If you think you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, get in touch. Email howdoyoudothat at joy.org.au. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community radio station, Joy 94.9. For more podcasts or to support Joy by becoming a member, donating or subscribing, head to joy.org.au.